Well, hi, everyone. This is Jess Mason here with C3, which is Comprehensive Core Curriculum. And I am joined once again by co-host Dr. Jenny Farah. How's it going, Jenny? Excited to talk about allergic reactions. I've got an itch, and that itch is because we're talking about allergic reactions, so I cannot wait. (laughs) Allergies and anaphylaxis and hypersensitivity, a little bit of everything there. We want to acknowledge the chapter author of Corpendium because These audio reviews for C3 are very largely based on the Corpendium chapter. So thank you to Christina Toop for writing an awesome chapter. We're mostly going to follow what's in the chapter, but, you know, we also got to add in our two cents and in some cases more than two cents or 50 cents or a dollar. It's a decent dollar sometimes. I think the exchange rate and with inflation, it's more like a buck these days. Yeah, yeah. But for you, that's very favorable because, you know, the more input, the better. So we'll cover the approach to the critical patient first, and then key concepts. And then in the next few chapters, we'll go through the diagnosis, treatment, disposition, and finally, the deep dive. So with that, shall we start approach to the critical patient? Approach to the critical patient. Yeah, let's start with the sickest, right? So these are our folks who are going to be in anaphylactic shock. And we're going to get into the details and the nuances of these definitions, but we're going to start all the way on one end of the spectrum with that sickest patient who's in anaphylactic shock. And like most things that we do, we're going to start with those ABCs. So the first is going to be managing that airway, making sure they're breathing adequately. And so right now we're talking about things like, you know, you might need to intubate. So get that airway cart by the bedside. Prepare for a difficult airway because if you're dealing with an allergic reaction, you might be dealing with a significant amount of angioedema. These patients are great candidates for flexible scope intubations and awake intubations at that. Maybe you do nasotracheal approach. You know, this is where you're going to have to get fancy depending on where that angioedema might B. And like with every intubation, but probably the most with this type of patient, prepare for potentially having to do a cricothyrotomy. I know we never want to think about it. We never want to do it. But for someone like this who might have no visible airway, even with video assistance for intubation, whether it's oral or nasal approach, this is a person you might have to crike if there's some issues there. And what you could do as well, just to assist them with their general breathing, if they're pretty wheezy, you can also give them bronchodilators in preparation for any kind of airway intervention you may have to do. So those were our A, Bs. And now we'll get to our Cs, which is really like an E, because we're going to be talking a lot about epi. So it's almost like A, B, C, E. But <laughs> yeah. uh, Jess, why don't, you, why don't you talk a little bit about the circulation management? Yeah. And in many ways, you're doing these things in tandem. You're assessing the airway and breathing. But as soon as you know that you have a patient coming in with anaphylaxis, someone should be bringing epinephrine to the bedside. So that's going in their anterior lateral thigh. We're going to say this a bunch of times throughout the episode, but it's 0.3 milligrams of 1 to 1,000 epinephrine intramuscular in that anterolateral thigh. So that should be going in that patient's thigh as soon as they arrive and you see that they need it while you're assessing their airway and breathing. This dose can be repeated every five minutes as needed, but if you start having to give more than two or three doses, then you might want to start a drip, an infusion. If you have to do that, It's 0.01 to 0.02 micrograms per kilogram per minute. And you can titrate that by 0.01 to 0.05 mics per kilo per minute every two to three minutes. I want to stay on E for just a second here, Jenny, because sometimes the biggest question is when that patient's, you know, maybe they do need epinephrine, maybe they don't. Sometimes when you're early on your career, it's hard to decide, should I pull the trigger on giving the epinephrine? And I want to speak to that for just a moment and say, first of all, very little downside if you're unsure. Very little downside to giving it. Not very many contraindications. In fact, I'd say no absolute contraindications, even people who have heart disease. So when in doubt, go ahead and give the epi. A few years ago, Ruben Strayer did a segment on this for MRAP. I liked his saying so much. He said, if A, B, or C, do E. A, B, C, do E. Yeah, see? Love it. We're the epi boys and we're here to say the road to epinephrine is three steps away. A, A, B, B, C, do E. When you give epinephrine, A, B, or C, give E. So if any issues with airway, breathing, or circulation, don't even think twice about it. Just administer the epinephrine. It is the one life-saving medication and intervention here other than plastic in their airway. A, B, C, do E. Also consider fluid resuscitation because these are our patients who are in distributive shock. So that's the form of shock where your volume's depleted because of all that vasodilation and all of that capillary leakage, so they're losing volume. So don't forget those fluids as well while you're prepping for everything else and managing those ABCs. Now, we could just end the episode here. In fact, let's do it. It's over. We're done. Bye, guys. 
Okay, just kidding. There are some adjuvant therapies we will briefly mention here, and then we'll have a longer discussion about later. Other things you're going to do, other than the life-saving interventions of plastic in the airway and epinephrine, are things like bronchodilators, antihistamines, and glucocorticoids. We'll talk more about that later. Not necessarily life-saving, but good things that you're, you're going to give. You're still going to give them, despite mediocre evidence at times. Let's have a little bit of a vocabulary lesson. This is a space where I find that a lot of people use terms interchangeably, and I know you all know what I'm talking about. Where allergic reaction becomes anaphylaxis, becomes angioedema, becomes anaphylactic shock, and everyone's sort of using these terms as if they all represent the same thing, and they don't. So let's start with the simplest of this pathology, which is just an allergic reaction. When we use the term allergic reaction, what are we talking about? So that's sort of an umbrella term, right? Allergic reaction is going to encompass all of these things, but it's different from anaphylaxis or anaphylactic shock, right? Yes, because the definition of an allergic reaction is simply a hypersensitivity reaction to a foreign protein or allergen. How is an allergy or an allergic reaction different from anaphylaxis? Where, Where do we cross that line? Well, anaphylaxis is when we're talking about a systemic hypersensitivity reaction that causes more severe and immediate onset symptomatology that can lead to cardiovascular collapse, maybe shock, and potentially cardiac arrest. So when you were talking about a systemic hypersensitivity reaction that's severe and and very quick onset, that is where we use the term anaphylaxis. And that is what makes it different than a simple allergic reaction or just using that term of an allergic reaction. Anaphylaxis is letting the provider know this is more than just a localized reaction. This is actually systemic and potentially lethal. Okay. Now, the definition and the exact criteria of what anaphylaxis is to make that diagnosis, that gets a little bit weird. We're going to go into more detail about it. But I think the key thing to know and key concepts is just that it's under-recognized because you have to have more than just one thing, unless that one thing's hypotension. So anaphylaxis is a little bit more nuanced, but like you said, Jenny, this is a systemic reaction, not just I got some hives on my hand type of thing. Right, right. And anaphylaxis can present without those hives or obvious mucocutaneous symptoms. And that's why we'll get more into the weeds with that diagnostic criteria, because it isn't so obvious. And certainly if someone then develops hypotension or cardiovascular instability, that's when we get into terms like anaphylactic shock. And so just want to make that very clear. And also another two terms that can interchange a lot. Amongst these terms of allergic reaction or anaphylaxis or anaphylactic shock, people will talk about angioedema, right? So angioedema is that mucocutaneous edema that we see, so like swollen lips, swollen tongue, which can occur in any of the aforementioned syndromes, but that's not necessarily the same as saying this person is suffering from anaphylaxis, right? Because if you have isolated lip swelling, doesn't necessarily represent anaphylaxis, but you certainly do have angioedema, right? And it's very important that people don't assume angioedema is the same as anaphylaxis. Right. Angioedema does not necessarily equal anaphylaxis, but they often overlap. So it is a bit confusing. And we'll go into a little bit more detail of this in the next chapter. I think for key concepts, that's important. We got our definitions under our belt. We're going to emphasize again that epinephrine is the first line treatment. That's the one that saves lives. And then we'll talk more about the adjuvant therapies coming up soon. You know, before we release any episode of C3, it does get peer-reviewed by multiple emergency physicians, and we try to seek out a content expert as well. In this case, our peer reviewer is Dr. Mike Winters from the University of Maryland, where he is currently the vice chair for clinical and administrative affairs. He's the former co-director of the Combined EM-IM program, and also the former director for critical care. He's been part of the Corpendium team since the beginning as well, serving as one of our associate editors. We are so grateful to have him as our peer reviewer. Chapter two, diagnosis. All right, Jess, pop quiz. Mm -hmm. What lab test is going to help you diagnose anaphylaxis? Oh, CBC, a CBC. (laughs) Oh, basic labs. ESR and CRP. No, you know, basic labs, just basic. That's all. (laughs) Just basic, not comprehensive metabolic panels, just the basic ones. No, I'm just teasing. It's a trick question, folks, because anaphylaxis is a clinical diagnosis. So... Labs, imaging, not very helpful, especially if you're dealing with one of those critically ill patients, but worth mentioning as we talk about the diagnosis of allergic reactions. And we should go into the diagnostic criteria now because there's multiple ways. When you actually pull up the diagnostic criteria, there's like three different ways you could be diagnosed and each one has multiple sub bullet points. I'm just going to tell you the good old Jess 
oversimplification of this diagnosis, okay? This is not the right way. This is the just way of thinking about it and making it super simple so I can remember it in a way that's actually clinically applicable. Two ways. There's only two ways you can get the diagnosis of anaphylaxis. The first one is you have hypotension in the setting of an allergy, okay? If you're hypotensive, we're done here. We don't even need to talk about anything else. Hypotension, you meet the criteria for anaphylaxis. The other way, if you're not hypotensive, but you're having an allergic reaction, is you have to have either hives or mucosal swelling plus one more thing. And that one more thing might be difficulty breathing or wheezing, or it might be GI symptoms like diarrhea or abdominal pain or nausea or vomiting. Okay, so that's it, just two ways. The first way, you have hypotension. And the second way is you don't have hypotension, but you've got some hives or mucosal signs plus one more thing. Boom, done. Okay, now Jenny. Boom, you get your epi. You get your epi. Boom. <laughs> you got your epi. And I think the whole point too of, of those distinguishments, because I think the world knows that if someone comes in with hives or like a swollen lip and they're very hypotensive, we can sort of label that as anaphylaxis, yeah. no problem. But I think having the other subset of criteria, which is that you don't necessarily need to have just isolated skin involvement. You could just have isolated GI symptoms or maybe just some isolated respiratory symptoms without the obvious external signs of allergic reaction. They want to make sure you're not forgetting that those patients as well could be suffering from anaphylaxis and need life-saving treatment. So I think the whole point is to highlight that it isn't the obvious cases like I mentioned earlier. It can be the less obvious ones where perhaps they're just hypotensive with some stomach upset and they don't know about any allergy exposure. So you have to think about that. You have to consider that it could be anaphylaxis. That is a tough patient, Jenny. Someone who ate something, maybe they don't even necessarily know yet that they have a specific allergy and now they have nausea, vomiting, and they're a little hypotensive. That sounds like someone who's just dehydrated from food poisoning. That actually might be anaphylaxis. That's super hard diagnosis to make. Usually they're like, oh yeah, I feel like my throat's closing up and I'm also having diarrhea. And that actually meets criteria for anaphylaxis, right? You have kind of the mucocutaneous symptoms plus one more thing. So they meet criteria. So it could be tricky. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about hypotension. So just to get clear on our definitions with that, for adults, it's what we, you know, the systolic blood pressure that's under 90, or if that drop is over 30% decreased from their baseline. So if their systolics tend to run higher or lower, reduce that by 30%, and anything below that systolic blood pressure is what we consider hypotensive and maybe anaphylactic shock if, it's, if we're dealing with an allergic reaction. And then for infants and children, we're looking at a low systolic appropriate for that child's age, or again, that 30% decrease from their baseline. That's what we mean by hypotension that would qualify for the criteria for this issue. Yeah, that's a good point. And um, I recommend not memorizing children's blood pressure charts because there's no point to it. Just look it up based on their age. And I think it also depends on their height at certain ages and stuff like that. So look that, that up as Yeah, you go. get the Braslow, get a nice little laminated card. Yeah, exactly. there you go, I don't, for the little ones. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, we talked a lot about the diagnostic criteria and how we apply that to patients, but how you're probably going to get there is a good history and obviously your exam. And it helps when they have a known allergy, right, Jess? Like it helps it does, if they're like, yeah. I'm deathly allergic to this thing and I ate it. Oops, I didn't realize it was at the restaurant. And that comes up a lot, right? Like people go to restaurants and don't realize yeah. what's in certain dishes. And that's obvious. But, you know, if you don't have that reported history, you're going to have to move on with your exam. Yeah. And so the exam findings, obviously, you're going to be listening to their lungs. You're listening for wheezing. You're also going to take your stethoscope and put it right over the patient's throat, and you're going to listen for strider, that uh, sound when they breathe in. That could be a sign of mucocutaneous swelling as well. You're going to look at their skin. Do they have hives? Do you see any swelling in their mouth or in their airway? You could also see signs in their eyes. Maybe they have some conjunctival erythema or tearing. And actually, the cutaneous symptoms, I should say, that's the most common out of all of these symptoms. 90% of patients who have allergic reactions, it's going to be a cutaneous presentation. The respiratory symptoms are also very common. So wheezing, shortness of breath, strider, nasal congestion, or they might say, I feel like my throat is tight or closing. That's in 60 to 70% of patients. What about GI? So GI symptoms, it could just be some abdominal discomfort. It could be something as sort of dramatic as profuse vomiting or diarrhea or nausea. That happens in about 40 to 50% of cases. Isolated cardiovascular symptoms like chest pain, palpitations, they might even have an arrhythmia or dizziness near syncope. That also shows up in about 40 to 50% of patients. And just to make our jobs even more challenging, 
In about 15% or less of patients, they might present with isolated neurologic symptoms. So these are folks who might be reporting headache, confusion. Maybe they're even having a seizure. So unfortunately, you know, it'd be nice if everyone was the obvious skin findings and some respiratory symptoms. But you could have these patients that are showing up with isolated GI symptoms, uh, cardiovascular symptoms, or like I said, even just isolated neurologic symptoms. And you might have to do a little digging to get to the fact that this could potentially be an allergic reaction. Okay, now we talked about not getting labs and not getting imaging, and these generally are not indicated whatsoever unless you have some other items on your differential that you're trying to exclude. But in case anyone out there is wondering about some of these labs like a histamine level or a serum tryptase, just know that they're not going to change anything that we do, but they might be helpful for consultants. So don't be surprised if someone else down the line is ordering that or if someone for some reason you're consulting and they ask you to order it, that's fine. I wouldn't get into an argument about it. It's just not going to change our management. But downline could become very important for the patient. Chapter 3, Treatment. The treatment of anaphylaxis, we largely covered all the big stuff early on, right? It's A, B, C's, IVO2 monitor, and epi, epi, epi. So it's really A, B, C, D, E, with the E being epi. A, B, C, D, E. And that epinephrine is, once again, we're going to say it again, it's 1 to 1,000, and it's 0.3 milligrams IM in the anterolateral thigh. You could get a little bit fancier and say it's 0.01 milligram per kilogram, but if you don't want to have to worry about doing math, you could just say 0.3 milligrams IM anterolateral thigh, right? Yes. It can also go up to 0.5 milligrams as well. Yeah, 0.3 to 0.5 for adults. For me, it's always helpful to remember that adult auto-injectors are 0.3 milligrams and the pediatric is 0.15 milligrams. So sometimes it's helpful for me just to get a home base and know that with adults, you can go up to 0.5 and with kids, you can go up to 0.3, just like an adult auto-injector. So that's kind of how I gauge it because we're talking about something that's going to be happening very quickly and you're probably going to have to call out this order to someone to assist you. You may not be in front of a screen. So it's good to just have these numbers you know, on deck that you can readily recall. And Just to say again, this is the epinephrine concentration of 1 to 1,000. When in doubt, 0.3 milligrams, 1 to 1,000. 0.3 milligrams of 1 to 1,000. It's 0.3 milligrams of 1 to 1,000. That's the dose in anaphylaxis. Wait, what is it? It's momentarily distracted. What's the dose of epi? Yeah, that's what I'm asking. It's not that hard, so tell me. It's 0.3 milligrams of 1 to 1,000. That's the Did we just hear a vaudeville show about the doses of epi? Oh my God, this is epic. Epic. Yeah, and if you are not getting a response after like two to three doses, then we start to talk about an infusion. So this would be intravenous administration, and you want to start that dose at 0.01 to maybe 0.02 micrograms per kilogram per minute. Again, that infusion rate is 0.01 to 0.02 micrograms per kilogram per minute. Now, once we've got that epi in, we're going to start thinking about adjuncts. So if the patient's wheezing, just like any wheezing patient, you're going to give them some Throw some albuterol. Yeah, give them some albuterol. (laughs) Whatever. Just dump it in the container and nebulize it. Do we even care about the dose? Probably not because it's just going to nebulize anyway. But it's 2.5 to 5 milligrams via nebulization. And then we get into our histamine blockades, these antihistamines. I don't know about you, Jess, but I always feel so smart when I know the H1 and H2s because inevitably someone will ask me, like, why do we give famotidine? I'm like, well, it's actually a histamine blocker, but it's an H2 receptor. I don't know why, but I feel very smart and savvy when I can bust out this knowledge. So we're talking about a histamine blockade. The H1 receptor, we're looking at something like diphenhydramine, and that dosage will be around 25 to 50 milligrams IV pediatric it's a one to two milligram per kg with a max dose of 50, which is our max dose for an adult per dose. So that's not hard to remember. The H2 blockers, that will be our famotidine. And you can deliver that 20 milligrams IV. The PEDS dose is 0.25 mg per kg, max dose of 20, just like in adults. And then cimetidine, also an option. You're going to look at a 300 milligram IV dose. The pediatric dose is four mg per kg with a max of 300, just like adults. So Thankfully, the max dose for peds falls in line with your lowest dose for an adult. So you'll, you'll have a safeguard there. 
But again, we're going to want to get that histamine blockade happening while we're working on all the other receptors. Okay, so we've done our epi. We've done our albuterol. Now we've hit our histamine receptors. Now we're going to give a glucocorticoid. This could be methylprednisolone. It could be prednisone. It could be hydrocortisone. If it ends in own, you're probably good to go. <laughs> so a dose for <laughs> methylprednisolone would be somewhere ranging from 60 to 125 milligrams, and that's IV. And in children, it's one to two milligrams per kilogram. If you're giving hydrocortisone, it's five milligrams per kilogram IV. If the patient's more stable and can tolerate something by mouth, then you can give prednisone orally as well. That's also fine. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Because yeah, we were talking about all IV dosing because you're assuming maybe the patient would have challenges swallowing at this point. So to avoid that, but you're right. If they can swallow a pill, you could do oral steroids as well. Completely appropriate. If though you are worried about some laryngeal edema, racemic epinephrine nebulized is something that could be very helpful as well, particularly if you think you're going to be moving forward with an intubation. It could be a good pretreatment before doing that. And speaking of intubation, if you are giving medication to intubate, ketamine would be a great choice. Not only is it hemodynamically fairly stable, it will also help facilitate bronchodilation. So I would say reach for ketamine if you're intubating a sick anaphylactic patient. Yes, it is definitely my medication of choice because they won't lose that respiratory drive. So if you're doing a challenging intubation, even just to get a good look, I love using ketamine first. And then once I feel like I'm, I've got that airway stabilized, you can move on to other sedative agents if they're now intubated. So absolutely. I mean, we love ketamine already, but we love it even more in these allergic reaction patients. It's 0.3 milligrams of 1 to 1,000. That's the dose of FA. Chapter 4. Disposition. All right, we've talked about our allergic reaction, anaphylaxis patients. Now, after we've successfully treated them, what are we going to do, Jess? What do we do with these people? This is actually more of a discussion because I think different folks manage these in different ways. I think that there are some hard stops and that if the patient had a very severe reaction or became quite unstable or required repeat doses of epinephrine, I would move to admit these folks. But I do think that there's room that if you don't fall into that category, and in mind you aren't like intubated and clearly going to the ICU, that you might be someone who's a candidate for some observation and potentially discharged from the outpatient setting thereafter. So a couple of things to consider. One of the things you have to think about is, are you potentially catching a patient in a window of being in that biphasic anaphylaxis? Wait, what? Okay, biphasic anaphylaxis. Tell me more about this because you get that initial reaction and then what happens? Like when is that second reaction expected? How long should we be watching them to catch the biphasic reaction? Right, so biphasic anaphylaxis is when you have a symptom-free interval without any re-exposure to the allergen again, and yet you develop anaphylaxis symptoms once again. So this could be someone who arrived, you treated them, they're symptom-free, and then it recurs. Or maybe someone who was like treated in the pre-hospital setting, they looked fine when they got to you, you didn't do anything, but you know they were treated. And now you're essentially looking at a normal human, which is hard. It's hard to gauge how for how long you're supposed to be looking at a symptom-free person. But that biphasic reaction can recur anywhere from 4 to 24 hours, maybe even 72. The median tends to be around 11 hours. And the incidence of even having this biphasic reaction, I mean, the stats are all over the map. You know, we were seeing stats in our research that were like as low as like 1%, very rare, up to 20 to 23%. So it's hard to gauge just how often this is happening, especially if it's happening when the patient's already home, hard to know. But do know that up to about 20% of patients, they can have a recurrence of their symptoms after a symptom-free interval without any re-exposure. And that window is really big. It's anywhere from maybe four to 72 hours with the median being 11. There are some clues that we came across that are helpful for identifying who might have that second phase of their anaphylaxis. And there's three risk factors. And if you have this constellation of risk factors, you're at much higher risk for getting that second phase. So one, prior history of anaphylaxis, two, an unknown trigger, three, and delayed administration of epinephrine. So they had their symptoms, but they didn't get epi for an hour or longer. If all three of those happen, then that patient's at much higher risk for having a biphasic reaction. As many as 20% of them could develop that. But still, Jenny, let's talk about this a little more because like you said, it's easy when it's easy, right? Someone who's intubated, clearly they're going to ICU. Someone who had a little bit of urticaria, got some diphenhydramine, easy discharge, no big deal. 
Now we have all these other patients that are in the in-between zone. Someone who got maybe one dose of epinephrine and then looks pretty good. I agree with you. If I'm redosing epinephrine, I'm not sending that patient home. But someone who got a single dose of epinephrine, there is a lot of room for practice variation here. And even if they looked quite sick when they first came in, maybe they were a little bit hypotensive and they had just diffuse hives all over their body. And then they rapidly improved after epinephrine and all the adjuvant medications. I might send that person home if they're sitting there looking really good for a few hours. Actually, I've done that many times and I feel like pretty comfortable with it, especially if they're able to immediately go pick up an epinephrine auto injector in case they do develop a biphasic reaction, especially if they're able to return to the emergency department. So I I have personally sent home many patients who have come in borderline critically ill, but have reversed really well and are sitting there looking great for a few hours. Yeah, I as well. I mean, I think if they're young, maybe it was a known allergen that unbeknownst to them they were exposed to, they got epi. I generally watch for four to six hours at least. And if there's no recurrence, I discharge home with an epi auto injector. Uh, But yeah, there's room for this, you know, because what if it's like an 80-year-old with a ton of comorbidities who has no one at home to watch them if they were to be discharged? You know, that might change my plan too. So I guess what we're trying to say is that there is some room for some provider variation here. And I think every case is going to be a little bit different and it maybe depends on the patient themselves and how reliable they are and managing their symptoms. That's why it's good that if you are going to discharge, have really good education, be a part of that discharge plan, especially uh, if it has to do with, you know, avoiding certain allergens and you're prescribing that EpiPen. Okay, so, so here's the thing though, and this is what always comes up every time we teach on shift or, you know, we talk about anaphylaxis, what are we doing during that observation period? What is the point of that observation period? Because if you get them to the point that they look totally well and they're just sitting there staring at you, then many people would argue that that observation period is for the second phase of the biphasic reaction. But Jenny, you just told me that the median onset is 11 hours and I am not watching someone for 11 hours who could otherwise potentially go home. You said you observe for four to six hours. I think a lot of people do what you do. I'm going to admit, I, Jessica Mason, admit publicly that I discharge people sooner than four to six hours. Scandal, what scandal? scandal? (laughs) How can you show your face or your voice? How can you do such things? Yeah, I mean, but I mean, the, the stats are on your side because yeah. when the window's 72 hours, we're going to do take these people home and watch them in your living room for three days. Of course not. Like, you know, we're all doing a little hocus pocus medicine here. And, and I think it is a lot of just provider comfort. And I, I don't think you're being unreasonable. Thank you, Jenny. <laughs> say it to the judge. Um, OK, so let's say we're, we're at the point where we are comfortable discharging them. They are comfortable being discharged. We all feel like this is a safe plan. Let's talk about those key things that you have to do. You should do for every anaphylaxis or even just allergy patient who you discharge, but especially if they had anaphylaxis, if they met criteria for anaphylaxis, what do you have to do upon discharge? So I found a really nice mnemonic called SAFE, speaking of a safe discharge, SAFE, that's S-A-F-E. It was published, or I found it, in the Canadian Family Physician by Drs. Tupper and Visser, who I've already decided as Canadian Family Physicians are probably the nicest people on the planet. And they were nice enough to put together this mnemonic to help us remember that what we should do for discharging these patients. So the S is for support. And this is ensuring someone can monitor them at home because, you know, they might succumb to some symptoms that they can't manage themselves. So someone at home who can watch them, always a plus. A is for allergen. If you know the trigger and it's a known allergy, makes your life easier. But if they're not aware of it, they should just, I guess, try to generally avoid whatever they were exposed to in the moments leading up to this response if they're unsure. F, Jess, what does F stand for? Follow up. This is the one that we miss the most frequently is the follow-up plan. And specifically, if you thought the patient had anaphylaxis, you should follow up with an allergist immunologist. Ideally, I mean, sometimes that first point of care is gonna be family medicine or their primary doctor, and that's fine too, but the actual recommendation is to get them in with an allergist within three to four weeks. And that's, if they don't know what they had an allergic reaction to, they're going to need allergy testing to identify it. So hopefully it doesn't happen again. So that is the one that we probably miss the most often that is quite important. And then the E. We all know what E stands for. We've said it a bunch of times, right? E stands for epi. Epi. Right. So you're discharging them with an epinephrine auto injector. And make sure that the patient can leave your department or your clinic and go straight to the pharmacy and pick that up. 
if they can't do that, if it's the middle of the night, I'm going to be more inclined to just obs that patient a little longer or maybe admit them to an observation unit if they're not able to go pick up that auto injector because you don't know. Maybe they're going to be the one with the biphasic reaction. And I have seen two patients with biphasic reactions in the last three months, like have seen hardly any up until now. And now it's like they're coming out of the woodworks. <laughs> Spooky. It was meant to be. Yeah. Chapter five. Deep dive. It's time to go swimming deep, deep into the ocean of anaphylaxis and allergies. Na, 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 na. <laughs> na, 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 na. It's going to come get you. I'm, I'm, I'm doing ominous uh, music because this is like the very boardsy stuff, which always portends badness, right? Like scariness. So if you're studying for an exam, this is a level of detail that might be helping you out. And it's also a level of detail that might be helpful on shift, right? As we talk about some of the literature on these different medications, how effective are they? Really kind of support your decision making there. But first, we'll do sort of the painful boardsy stuff. It's not that painful, but if you're taking the boards, yeah, keep listening. You're going to want to know this. Triggers. All right, let's start with the triggers. And this is interesting, depending on adults versus children, what the common triggers are. How is that different? Well, for adults, the most common triggers are actually medications. So the ones that are more likely to do it are things like the beta-lactam antibiotics, so like the penicillins, NSAIDs, muscle relaxants. IV contrast, which hopefully, you know, is being done in your setting, you know, it's being administered. But think more medications if an adult is coming in with it. In fact, one study found that medication-related anaphylaxis was the most common cause of death in the inpatient setting. So That's disturbing. it definitely has a high occurrence rate for sure. And just something that you should think about initially. And in these adult patients, if you have someone with existing cardiovascular disease or they're older, those are risk factors for a very fatal drug anaphylaxis reaction. So adults think medications. Now, on the other hand, in kids, it's more commonly foods. We all know this. Like, we all know that the common allergens for kids, nuts, especially peanuts, fish, and shellfish. And actually, one study found that the time from exposure to death in the outpatient setting was only 30 to 35 minutes. Like, that is a very short amount of time, and that's very, very scary how severe these reactions can be. So when I dropped my kid off at daycare or preschool and there's signs about don't bring peanuts into the classroom, don't bring food from home. They mean it because this is a very, very serious problem for children who are afflicted with these common allergies. And then something that I found interesting, and maybe you've seen this in your practice, exercise. There are some foods that coupled with exercise within a couple of hours, that can trigger an anaphylaxis in some patients. They think it has to do with some of the biochemical changes that happen in our body with exercise, like how our lactate and endorphin level chains or pH changes. So that, that biochemical change that happens in our body with exercise could be triggering this food allergy. So something to consider too, if someone was exercising at the time of their symptom onset, that was uh, rather interesting to learn about and something you perhaps have seen. We actually did an MRAP segment on exercise-induced anaphylaxis a few years ago with Gita Pensa. And that was the first time I had learned about it. It was when I was interviewing her about it. And it is super interesting because let's say that the allergen is shrimp. You could eat shrimp and then just, you know, relax for the evening and you'll be fine. You could exercise and you'd be fine. But if you eat shrimp and then you exercise, then even if it's just a few hours after eating the shrimp, that is what triggers the anaphylactic reaction. So that's- Is this why I can't go swimming after I eat? Was this why my mother told me that? Is this it? This is it. This is probably why we can't go swimming right after we've eaten. This is probably this is it. it, folks. And then there's obvious triggers like stings, right? So a bee sting or some type of insect sting, trying to remove that stinger appropriately is probably very helpful. And then just, I love this last point because this is a common misconception yes. about allergens and triggers. Yes. So some people say, Oh, they come in with anaphylaxis and you're like, what'd you have? I had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Oh, okay. Well, maybe it's the peanut butter. And they're like, no, it couldn't be the peanut butter. I eat peanut butter and jelly all the time. I have peanut butter every single day. I'm not allergic to peanut butter. Well, surprisingly, you can develop an allergy at any point in your life. So just because you've been exposed a thousand times before doesn't mean that today couldn't possibly be the day. It very well can be. So allergies can develop at any point in your life. Reactions. All right, folks, we're going to get into some textbook stuff. I want you all to take a deep breath and prepare because we're about to launch into the different types of hypersensitivity reactions. And it involves numbers, not just any numbers, but the Roman numerals of our textbooks. <laughs> yeah. But right? we're, but we're not going to do Roman all. numerals show up. 
Remember the coagulation cascade? I'm telling you, these Roman numerals are just showing up everywhere. Don't say so coagulation about- cascade on this program ever again. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Krebs cycle. Remember that? Just like PTSD all over the place. Okay. <laughs> so the ones that we encounter in, in emergency care are really the type 1 and type 4 types of hypersensitivity reactions. So one type 1 is where we're talking about immunoglobulin E. Uh, and this is when an antigen or some type of exposure will bind to IgE on the surface of basophils and mast cells. And that's what causes the release of a bunch of inflammatory mediators like histamine, uh, prostaglandins. And it's, it's one of the more common ways we think of a hypersensitivity reaction. And this would include things like drug reactions or where someone gets urticaria, angioedema, anaphylaxis, so many things we've already talked about. That is a type 1 IgE, E like elephant, mediated reaction. And those inflammatory mediators can lead to a lot of mixed pictures of shock because it can lead to distributive shock, which we already know happens with allergic reactions, but also cardiogenic and then hypovolemia is coupled with all of this. So it's a very diffuse sort of severe process when it happens. Four. Contrast that with type four. Okay, type four is a delayed. So think it's a later number. So this is our delayed hypersensitivity reaction and it's T cell mediated. So you have your helper T cells, your T1 cells. They've been previously sensitized and they recognize an antigen and then they recruit more T cells, and this produces an inflammatory reaction. So this is going to be the cause of contact dermatitis, and then sort of the bad emergency rashes like Steven Johnson syndrome, erythema multiforme, for example. So those are the only ones we're going to cover, type 1 and type 4. That's going to encompass most of what seems to look like an allergic reaction in the emergency department, and most of these are going to fall into type 1. If it's anaphylaxis, it's going to be type 1. Now, here's one more thing we got to throw at you because you might get tested on it, even though it is clinically not very relevant, and that is an anaphylactoid reaction. What's that, Jenny? Oh, the anaphylactoid. It's anaphylaxis adjacent, but not quite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, anaphylactoid is a non-immune mediated reaction. So no immunoglobulins are involved, like IgE and those type 1 hypersensitivities we were just talking about, but it's a non-immune mediated inflammatory response and it involves mast cells and basophils, you just don't see that immunoglobulin contributing to what's being released. And clinically, it doesn't look any different than anaphylaxis, so it's really of no, it's not gonna change your management at all, you're gonna be treating them the same, but just know that you can have someone present with what looks like an anaphylaxis reaction, when in fact it could be non-immune mediated, and that's in the anaphylactoid category. It changes nothing. It almost, I can't say it doesn't matter because you might get tested on it and it's good to know about it, but it changes nothing about your diagnosis or your management, you're still going to do everything the same. It's not like someone comes in with anaphylaxis and you're like, quick, get a microscope. I need to look at their basophils, right? It doesn't matter. You're still going to treat it the exact same way. But just know anaphylactoid is a thing. Okay. Yeah. And all, all of these reactions can come up within five to 20 minutes of exposure, but food allergies can take longer. Kind of like we were talking about that exercise induced. The food allergies can show up a little bit more delayed, but typically symptoms will erupt within five to 20 minutes of exposure. I think that's so interesting that it could be hours later in some cases, because some people will come in and be like, yeah, you know, I had shrimp pasta for lunch, but I didn't get these symptoms until four hours later. Well, it could still be the shrimp and it probably is the shrimp pasta. So uh, yeah, quite a delay there. Medications. All right. We need to take a deep dive on some of the medications because we've mentioned them all. And there might be some people who are like, hey, you, you talked about them, but why? Why are we giving H1, H2 blockers when we know there's not great evidence for them? So let's take a deep dive on the different medications, starting with epinephrine. 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 It's the only medication with a proven mortality benefit. So that's, that's why we love it so much. And, you know, we always emphasize it, it should be given, even if you're not entirely sure it's to the patient's benefit to administer it. And I know we've said this a lot, but it's that intramuscular dose in that anterior lateral thigh. And the intramuscular injection is actually faster than if it's subcutaneous or if that IM shot was given in the deltoid. So that IM shot in the thigh is the best route to administer this medication. It's not just by habit that we do it that way. It's actually the best way to get the quickest onset. And that peak concentration in the body is going to be reached within about eight minutes. And it's not contraindicated even in patients with ischemic heart disease. You know, because you're talking about risk benefit here of not having that epi for a life-threatening allergic reaction. So 
Just a reminder of all the meds we're talking about, Epi is really the only one with the mortality benefit. Yeah, and its peak concentration is at eight minutes, but that doesn't mean it doesn't start taking effect sooner than that. Of course, it starts taking effect much sooner than that, and then it peaks at eight minutes. The ischemic heart disease thing, that comes up all the time where people are like, oh, I don't want to give him Epi because, you know, they've had a, a stent in the past. Guess what? That patient has anaphylaxis, you're going to give him Epi still. It's still safe for the patient to receive epinephrine, and you should still give it because it's life-saving. Done. Antihistamines. Now we can talk about the antihistamines. So there's H1 and H2 blockers. And you named them earlier when we were in the treatment section. You talked about diphenhydramine as our H1 blocker. And you talked about famotidine or cimetidine as your H2 blocker. What are some of the potential benefits or downsides to these medications? So histamine blockers, definitely second line after our favorite epinephrine, which is your frontline treatment. And remember, this is just going to prevent the release of additional histamine. So the histamine that's already circulating in that person's body isn't going to go anywhere. It's not going to take it away. It's just going to prevent further release of that histamine, which will maybe help slow the progression of anaphylaxis, but isn't going to take away the train that's already left the station. You know, that's already happening. And the histamine blockade is also not going to be treating any of that airway edema or if you're seeing hypotension or other cardiovascular compromises. Also important to know, it's going to take like a good 30, 40 minutes to really reach its maximal effect. So don't anticipate that that histamine blocker is going to take action right away. It'll be a while before you'll see the benefits of that. Steroids. Now we get into the steroids. Steroids are also second line agents, and there's no mortality benefit for treating with steroids or in preventing a biphasic reaction. And Jenny, I learned incorrectly that the purpose of giving steroids was to prevent the biphasic reaction. Is that what you learned? Yeah. I mean, I, I, well, I was told it was like the longer acting agent. Yeah. So it prevents, you know, further development of symptoms. Okay. So there's really no good evidence to definitively say that it does, but we all pretty much give it because there's not a lot of downside. And if they do have a biphasic reaction and you didn't give it, then I think think that you may be in a little bit of trouble there. So most of us are giving steroids and we even know it's not going to work magically. It doesn't, steroids don't work in five minutes. It's going to take several hours for them to kick in. And then the other question is how much steroid do you give? And then for how long do you give the steroids? No one knows. It's a little bit of hocus pocus. So if you're going to give prednisone, you can give one milligram per kilogram. If you're going to give prednisolone, that's IV, 60 to 125 milligrams IV. But then what? Just one dose and done? Or are you giving a burst for five days? This is an area where I think there's a lot of practice variation. And when there's a lot of practice variation, it means there's no good evidence. So what do you do, Jenny? Yeah, so I'm a one and done kind of a lady. So uh, I usually do 125 <laughs> of the methylprednisolone. That's, that's usually my go-to for adults. And I'm, I'm not redosing that, and nor am I giving a prescription for a five-day burst of oral steroids. I usually don't do that. Okay. But it is okay if that's your practice pattern. That's I think what a lot of people out there are doing. I'm not doing it either, generally, unless I have some additional concerns. So there you go. Steroids, meh on evidence, but most people do it. We survived. That was the deep dive. We did it. We've reached the shore. (laughs) Awesome. Chapter six, cases. Jenny, these are real cases. These are real patients. And I have the first one for you, okay? We're going to take a listen. This is a 44-year-old woman. Her chief complaint she's coming in with is allergic reaction. And let's take a listen to the history and then we'll discuss. Case one. So I just got done eating Chipotle and about five to 10 minutes later, I broke out in hives. Then my roof of my mouth and my tongue started itching real bad. And then by the time I got down to the urgent care, um... My chest was starting to get tight. My throat was feeling like it was swelling up. Did it just feel like it was kind of getting tight and swollen? Or did you notice any actual swelling of your tongue, your lips, your mouth? It just felt like it. Okay. Have you ever had a reaction like this before? One time when I was in my 20s after I took sulfa. You said you broke out in a rash on your skin this time? Mm-hmm. Okay. Where did you get the rash? On my chest, my face, my ear, my left ear. Um, but then itching was like everywhere. Did you have any difficulty breathing? No, just the tightness. Um, and how about any um, like stomach upset, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea? No. Okay. So when you got here, um, we gave you some medication. As you know, you got some epinephrine to start with. Um, what did that do for you? Made the itching stop. 
made me feel like shit. <laughs> <laughs> and how so? Like, what exactly do you feel? Um, very jittery. Um, and you feel like your heart's racing? Oh, yes. It was racing before that, but I friend them right. too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Did that get worse? It did. Yeah. Okay. How about the... Like itching sensation you were describing in your mouth and your throat and tightness. Did that get better after the epinephrine? The itching is better. The tightness in my throat and my chest is still there. Okay. I think that's all. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. It's a classic a story of if they do believe it's food related that, you know, the onset could happen sometime after the meal. I think some people think that it has to happen the moment you ingest like one piece of it. And it should happen as soon as you start eating. But a lot of people will say it wasn't until after I completed my meal that I started to feel funny. How would you put a label on these symptoms? Would you call this allergic reaction? Would you call it hives? Would you call it anaphylaxis? If you had to label it something, what would you call it? Oh, and I could tell you what she looked like if that helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, it would help. Yeah, Phil, did she actually have oropharyngeal swelling? Was there anything like that? Or was it, I mean, I think you, you clarified it well when you asked her about feeling it versus seeing it. But yeah. yeah, go ahead and tell me what you saw. Hives, lots of them. Other than that, she looks pretty good. She doesn't have any oropharyngeal swelling that I can see, no lip swelling, no strider, no wheezing, just kind of a little bit tachycardic at this point and some hives. Okay, right. So you've got the allergic reaction component. Doesn't sound like any angioedema, though. Secondary systems, if we were going into another body system, you know, could qualify as an allergic reaction. But certainly, you know, we're parceling this out here just based off what you saw and what she said she was experiencing. Yes. And here, I think, is the key to this case. Do you go off of concrete evidence where I have to look at you and I have to see the swelling with my own eyes because I'm not going to believe you. You saying that you feel like your throat's closing up. How many times do we hear that? Patients say, I feel like my throat's closing up. Do you believe them? Do you give them epinephrine based off that? Jenny, I'm going to say, I do. I believe them. I believe. And I... I don't know how much fact there is sounds, in this. I know this sounds, you're like, I am a believer. I'm a believer. Unapologetically, I am a believer <laughs> of the throat closing in phenomena of the world. And well, I think like anything else, this is a risk versus benefit yes. phenomenon, right? And, you know, you're sitting yes. there going, what is the downside of, is this person safe to receive a 0.3 milligram dose of epinephrine or are they not in this moment in time? And I think that they're going to feel subtle changes before I can see them. So, of course, there's people who are going to say this and it's not going to be true, right? That we've all seen that happen before. But by and large, you have a fairly reliable patient telling me she has a sensation of throat closing. I don't need to hear Strider. How much throat closing do you think you need to have before you actually have Strider? Because that's kind of scary. A dangerous amount. Yeah, Yeah, kind of a dangerous amount. So could there be some that I just can't see or hear or detect at this point? I think yes. And so I'm erring on the side of treatment. Very little downside, like you said. Let's just give her the epinephrine and maybe she feels better after that. Or maybe she feels like she just had, you know, five shots of espresso. Right. And I'm glad that she sort of clarified. And you guys talked about at the end about what she was experiencing after the epi administration, because as we know, epinephrine can cause a lot of the same symptoms that someone might present to you with, which is that panicky sensation, palpitations that all could get worse with the epinephrine. So it's a good reminder to prep your patient, give them appropriate expectations that this medicine's probably going to make you feel a little bit worse before you feel better. That's helpful because when you circle back to them and go, hey, how do you feel? They might say, not any better or I feel much worse. And it could be hard for you to then determine, well, is it because your allergic reaction is getting worse? Or maybe this medicine I gave you sort of set you up to feel worse and I didn't prep you that this might happen. So I think setting the expectations ahead of time of, hey, I'm going to give you medicine. It might still make you quite jittery, but it should help with the itchiness. It should help with some of the other symptoms you're having, but don't be surprised if you still feel like your heart is pounding after I give you this. So that way, when you come back 30 minutes later, an hour later and say, hey, how you doing? They'll be like, okay, you were right. I still feel a little jittery, but a lot of my other symptoms have subsided. I got a question for you, Jenny. I have my own answer, but I'm curious to hear yours. Someone like this, who's not like a super sick anaphylactic patient, she was never hypotensive, like none of this was ever critical. It was like a soft call, but let's just treat her. How long are you going to observe someone? You gave Epi. How long are you going to observe someone like this before you think, yeah, you can go home now? Well, I, I take into consideration all the things you just mentioned. Like, let's say this was a case of really just urticaria, maybe sensation of throat closing, but they were never hypoxic. I never heard wheezes on my auscultation. I, I, I never saw any oropharyngeal swelling. But let's say I did get Epi or medics gave Epi in the field because that happens a lot, too. Yeah. You're sort of seeing them after mm-hmm. the fact and they got epinephrine by EMS. If that's the case. I tend to do the classic four to six hours, which we've talked about isn't really based in a whole lot of literature 
Obviously, if there's any rebound of symptoms that changes things, and now we're talking maybe an overnight observation. But I, I tend to go to the four to six hour marker. It also depends on, well, what's that time of day? Does that have me discharging someone at 2 a.m.? Because I don't really love that. Is this someone who's going to be with them at home who can observe them? And it's, it's sheer decision making because I've had plenty of patients who after that first hour or so, they're feeling better, will say, hey, look, doc, I've got my friend here. They're going to be with me all day. Can I just maybe go and I'll, I'll know to come back if something happens? And I say sure to that. And that that has them well before the four to six hour marker that I usually use. I think we talked about this earlier in the episode, but perhaps I'm a lot more cavalier with these soft call anaphylaxis patients or someone who you give epi to just because of really severe urticaria. I will usually watch them for an hour at this point and then let them go if they're feeling okay and there's no signs that their allergic reaction is recurring. That would be a very different answer. It's very case dependent. And if they were sicker at initial presentation, I would definitely observe them longer or admit. But that goes to show, Jenny, that there is really like a wide variety of practice on this and it's not necessarily right or wrong. There's no magic number here. Yeah. And I put them in the same category as almost like the Narcan wake-ups. Like how long are you supposed yeah. to observe those for? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a big category of people where the observation period is a bit of a wild card. You know, trauma patients who nothing shows up on CT, but you're worried about maybe some bowel injury. How long are we going to observe them press on their belly? Maybe this is something that incorporates your trauma system and sort of how they manage that. But it's the same premise, like the observation period. What does that look like? And I don't know. I always try to tell my residents, I go, this is one of those things where you're going to see attendings do this a lot of different ways. No one is reckless and cavalier and no one is overly conservative. You know, the, it's just the, the gray of what we do. And it's, it's everyone's practice pattern. Case two. You ready for case number two? Let's do it. Okay. This is a 38-year-old woman who's coming in with a possible allergic reaction and rash. Let's take a listen. Um, I had a rash that I was allergic to that I think I have touched poison ivy, but I think it was a tree branch. Mm-hmm. What's it feel like? Um, very burny, itchy, heat. It's hard to breathe. Your throat starts kind of itchy. Mm-hmm. It comes behind your neck and, and forward in your arms and sometimes your fingers. And what did the rash look like? Um, it looked like mosquitoes from the beginning. Okay. Um, And then what about any other symptoms? You said some tightness around your throat. What did that feel like? Like um, when it goes around your throat, it's because of the heatness and like you can't breathe. Uh, You do vomit. You do feel dizziness. Your head and your face will be uh, heat like if it was a microwave. So you felt like it was kind of tightening up in your throat? Yes. And then I couldn't breathe. I did throw up a lot. And um, when you came here and then you, you got an injection medicine... Did that change anything for you? Yes, it did. It took off the burnness. It took off the itching. Okay. So it took off the nausea, the, the, the nausea and the hard breathing. Okay, so it got a little better. Yes. Okay. Okay. How are you feeling now? Uh, better. 100% better. Good. Thanks. Thank you for You're doing welcome. that. welcome. Woo! Okay, a lot going on there in that history, Jenny. What do you think? What do you, what do you think is going on with this patient? <laughs> what do you think? Well, I think this is a great demonstration of the variety of words our patients use, and we sometimes have to decode what this all means collectively. But I think she uses some important terms like the heat, the heat she's feeling, because I think in a lot of these cases, they're feeling something that maybe we can't see. And heat, sort of like the throat closing in. There's a sensation coming somewhere that we're not going to be able to appreciate the way they can, but having them report that to us should sort of pique our interest into what's going on. Also, what sounded like bites that maybe based on your observation had coalesced to maybe a more obvious like urticaria. I think that's important too, because sometimes these rashes do show up as first like macular papular, and then those macules become more coalesced into like an actual hive, right? But they might say it was bumps to start, which may not alert us to allergic reaction right away. So when she said mosquito bites, and then they sort of got grouped together, I I could certainly understand why that would have evolved for her. And that's what it looked like. It looked like hives and sort of patchy areas of erythema with some hives springing up in the distribution she described, some along her neck, some on her trunk, some on her arms. And she said they were moving around. Now, one key thing that she did say, because it is, like you said, we're kind of decoding, trying to interpret what's probably a very weird sensation for her. She's trying to put it into words, doing the best that she can. But some things that really should stand out, we get to those GI symptoms. She was having abdominal cramping and she had vomited multiple times. She also describes that tightness sensation in her throat. But again, on exam, there's no oropharyngeal swelling, there's no strider, and there's no wheezing. 
So if I had to put her into some sort of diagnostic category, what do you think? What would you call this? Well, this this would be anaphylaxis to me. I mean, it sounds like she didn't have any hypotension with it, which is good. But definitely, we, we seem to have hit a bunch of different systems. She has the mucocutaneous symptoms. She's got the rash and she's got GI symptoms. So she um, she's going to get some epinephrine. I know earlier in the episode, we talked about that prior MRAP episode that Ruben Strayer did where he said, if A, B, or C, give E. And I think that's great advice, right? Like, those are the cases absolutely you're going to give epinephrine. But when you meet anaphylaxis criteria, I mean, you saw it in both of these cases. No one here is critically ill. And yet both I gave epi to and both got better after the epi. And so when you weigh those risks and benefits, not a lot of downside in these patients. No big reason why I shouldn't give them this treatment. And they symptomatically improved. I see just much more benefit than risk. And how, how much did she wait afterwards, Jess, after the epi? <laughs> you know what? I think I kept her for a couple of hours. I lean towards less observation on these patients if they don't look critically ill when they first come in. Yeah, and I think that's totally reasonable. Sometimes I have what I call accidental observation periods, which is that's you meant it. to discharge them, but then you got sidetracked with a really critical case and you're like, well, at least we got another hour or two of observation out of this other patient. Okay, well, and that's all reassuring. And the chart will reflect. <laughs> Monitored yes. <laughs> in the emergency department for X amount of hours. Mm-hmm. They were. They right. Were, they were monitored. <laughs> yeah. And, and also your patient, too. Your patient, you know, these symptoms in this constellation of, of symptoms that we're talking about here, they, they're anxiety provoking. So you might just have a patient who will feel more comfortable being observed for a bit because they have gone through something that caused a lot of anxiety. The symptoms mimic a panic attack, if you think about it, with the palpitations and, and that uncomfortable experience all over their body. So you know, they may they may wa- want to hang out in your ER as well, just for the simple fact of feeling better and feeling more calm. That's a good point. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. And I also want to say thank you to these two incredible patients who were so kind and willing to participate in education. And that's a vulnerable thing to do. And so I appreciate their courage and, and willingness to help us out. So thanks to the great patients at John Peter Smith Hospital in Fort Worth, Texas. And thank you, Jenny. This was fun. Till next time. It's time for Big Mel with a little revelation. Revelations. So can I summarize this first part? In the patient that's sick, where there's anything wrong with their airway, with their breathing, or their circulation, you're going to give them epinephrine 0.3 milligrams in the lateral thigh. Why there? Because uh, it's got a big blood supply and it's a big muscle and it's hard to miss. And it has been studied versus the deltoid and it appears to work better. So just start with that. Repeat it. If you have to go to a drip, you're going to look up the dose. But don't be a stranger when it comes to epinephrine. It is life-saving. Do not wait until the patient is super sick. Then you can give fluids and then you can give other stuff. But start with epinephrine. So if I were to summarize the diagnosis, you've got allergic reactions, which is hypersensitivity reactions, which then is a spectrum from uh, nothing too bad to you've got anaphylaxis and now you've got systemic symptoms. And then at the bad end, you've got anaphylactic shock. You're hypotensive, you're poor, perfusing, bad. And we tend to under-recognize anaphylaxis. We're going to talk more about that. And then there's angioedema, which is a particular subset of anaphylaxis, but also anaphylactoid, which is sort of the tongue, mouth, swelling thing, which we've done a whole C3 on in the past. Worthy of your review, because in a lot of cases, it actually does not respond to epinephrine very well, because it can be mediated by bradycardins. But go listen to the whole show, because it's kind of complicated, but we try and simplify that one as well. So the diagnosis is clinical. And we think about the classic thing is that the person's got hives and then they become hypotensive and we go, oh, that's anaphylaxis. But just remember, although skin findings are really common, you don't just have to have skin findings. You can have GI findings. You can be short of breath. You can even have neurological findings. So if you've got uh, skin findings plus hypotension, that's anaphylaxis. But remember, if you've got skin plus GI findings, that's anaphylaxis. If you've got neurological findings plus GI findings, that's anaphylaxis. So it's when you start to become multi-system. That's when we call it anaphylaxis. can be difficult to diagnose. It just said, what's just a little tummy ache versus what's a little anaphylaxis? For me, it's the GI one I always forget. I had a patient who had hives and then had bloody diarrhea. And then one of the senior residents had to tell me, dude, that's anaphylaxis. That's GI anaphylaxis and skin findings. Treat it with epi. Treatment, did they say epinephrine? Yes, they did 100,000 times. But then adjuncts, albuterol, H1 blockers, H2 blockers, steroids. But it is not clear, actually, frankly, how good all of these other things like the albuterol, the H1, the H2, and the steroids. We all do it. 
But if you really look through the literature, it is not clear how much it adds to what? Epinephrine. If you are not doing the epinephrine, this other stuff, mm. probably not very useful. What's the summary of disposition? Same with everything. If uh, they had anaphylaxis and you treated them and they got better and nothing else is going on, you watch them for a while and they stay good, they can go home. There is this biphasic thing, as they talked about, it can occur hours to days later, and it tends to be associated with that they've had anaphylaxis before, they don't have a known allergen, and there was delayed epinephrine, but the average time is like 11 hours. So like Jess says, you're not going to keep people for 11 hours. You're going to keep them for a few hours, you're going to get them some epi, and you get them some follow-up, and tell them all the things that they need to do, and when to use the EpiPen, and when to come back. If they're complicated, like they got really sick with this episode or you had to inject them multiple times, or they were super hypotensive, or they just don't look good. You keep them. You watch them. Same with everything else in medicine, right? They don't look good. And you had to do a lot of stuff to them? Probably they should stay. So my summary of the deep dive is to remember this. Type 1 hypersensitivity reactions equals IgE equals mast cell vomit and all the hypotensive and stuff. Type 4 is delayed. It's T cells. And this is things like Stephen Johnson syndrome and contact dermatitis. So just remember those two. Type 1, fast, IgE, mast cell vomit. Type 4, delayed T cells, contact dermatitis, Stephen Johnson. Anaphylactoid is basically the same as anaphylaxis, but you don't have the IgE part. So therefore, you probably haven't been exposed to this thing before. The classic one used to be the older IV contrast agents. I've never had IV contrast agent before. Radiologist pushes IV contrast agent. And I have an anaphylaxis reaction, but it's not anaphylaxis because I've never seen it before. It's actually anaphylactoid. For some reason, this thing is making my mast cells vomit. You treat it the same way. H1 and H2 blockers are to reduce ongoing release of histamines, steroids, probably the same way. But just know they have not, H1, H2 and steroids, been associated with a reduction in mortality. The only thing that has a reduction in mortality is epinephrine, but it is common practice for now to give an H1 and H2 and steroids in the belief and the hope that it will reduce a second event or if a second event occurs in the belief and the hope, not the science, that uh, it would be less severe. What an outstanding review. Thank you, doctors. 